Hello, my little ghouls and goblins. Welcome to Late Night, which is the show that you're listening to right now. But if you like shows and to be a ghoul and or a goblin, I'd like to tell you about an amazing live stream that I'm a part of on Halloween night called The Witching Hour. Our ghost host with the most, Susie Burhow, will be guiding us through a magical evening with guests like Tootie McNooty, Rachel Sam Evans, Olivia Gatwood, Kate Clover, and your girl Layton for a night of scary stories, music, goth TED Talks, and more. If you like deep cuts or any of the work that I do with VHSs or circuit bending, you won't want to miss my set. It's an incredible show that I am so excited about, and I really hope you can join us. And even if you can't join us on the day for the live stream, if you buy a ticket, the VOD will be available for you afterwards. Speaking of tickets, they're on sale now for $12 at witchinghourlive.com, and a portion of the proceeds from the show will go to the Ochre Project, which is a really awesome charity for supporting the Black trans community. You can also pick up some witchy merch that I designed. So if you ever wanted my art on a tangible object, we got two shirts and a hoodie, and you can also get a bundle with tickets. So you should go check it out. That's again, witchinghourlive.com. All right, shilling over. Hello, everybody. It's Brian. The inevitable finally happened during this episode, and we waited so long to introduce ourselves that we just completely forgot. So we're going to do it right now, right here at the top. My name is Brian. The other person you're going to hear is Leighton. And our special guest this week is Andrea Jones-Roy, who's a political scientist, data scientist, circus performer, and the host of the podcast, Ask a Political Scientist. And she's great. It's a really fun episode. I apologize for my total lack of professionalism. Enjoy the show. Brian, I spoke to you just last night as we were recording our thing with Dear Sweet Jory and uh, ran out of my sleeping mitts. So I slept for three hours last night. I also slept for three hours last night, but that had nothing to do with medication. It was because a tiny person got up in the middle of the night and had to pee. And then I was just up. So (sighs) I slept for like six hours and thought it wasn't very much. Uh, but now I feel great relative to the two of you. <laughs> so thanks and sorry for that. It's fine. I'll just be a little, a little more delirious than usual today. Definitely one of those like mornings where like a bunch of little things pile up and then you're just like, just steaming, like frothing, angry, pissed where like this dude was following me and like honking at every oh. fucking stop sign. Just like, motherfucker, get off my ass, please. Just like slow trailing you in a car? I mean, it was like, it was one of those goddamn parking enforcement people. But yeah, it was just like, I was paused. I was not rolling through stop signs and they were pissed at me that I wasn't doing like a rolling stop. Oh, so they were mad you were following the law. Yeah. I thought you meant they were like stalking, you know, that kind of thing. At least that would be a little jazz for a Tuesday morning, whatever day it is, (laughs) Tuesday, question mark. Every day is vaguely Tuesday, but yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, it's basically the week is like, Monday, Monday one, Monday two, yeah. Tuesday, Friday, hell weekend, and then back on yeah. for three more Mondays. Yes. See, for us, we can keep track of time because I have a child in school, right? Oh. So here's the main difference between weekdays and weekends. We wake Audrey up at eight o'clock rather than 730. And that oh gosh. <laughs> gives us an extra precious half hour in the morning. Wow. How old is Audrey? She's six and a half. Okay. That's early for me. I don't have kids, so maybe I shouldn't say any of these things. But uh, like, I set my alarm for eight, and that's very, very early for me, a person in my 30s. <laughs> so yeah. good for Audrey. 
Oh, believe me, until I had a child. That was very early. Okay. But now I finally, I feel like once I had a child, especially once the kid turned like two or three, I was like, oh, that's why old people do those things. So mm. I get up every morning at six or 6.30, no matter what, just so I can have some time to myself Ooh. during the day. Mm. My boyfriend does that to get a break from yeah. me, <laughs> which is not a flattering <laughs> analogy comparing to children, but uh, that's like his favorite time, basically. And you two live together in an apartment in oh, yeah. New York. Yeah, we are in an apartment that is fine if you're working outside your home, but not fine <laughs> if you're working out of your home in a hypothetical quarantine for nine months. Hypothetically. Yeah. Hypothetically, yeah. So we, we have a one bedroom and there is a hallway, which I'm grateful for. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> but like, I literally just had to kick him out of, well, I'm in the kitchen slash living room. And I had to kick mm -hmm. him out to do this. And so he had to tell his work call that he had to switch to the bedroom. It's nine months and we should have made a better system and we have not. Oh, hey, work fellas. We're going to take take this one to the bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, team, go get them. It is amazing the number of bedrooms you see on Zoom these days. Like yeah. all these glimpses into people's lives that you just never had before. Yeah. So I teach at NYU and uh, we are doing some stuff in person, which actually is helping me keep track of what day it is at least two days out of the week. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, most of the vast majority of students are on Zoom and it's very strange, especially when they come to office hours and you're kind of one on one and you're just like, I don't want to see in students dorm rooms or childhood <laughs> bedrooms. Like it's very creepy, to be honest. So you're doing Zoom office hours, Zoom office hours. Yeah. And for the in-person stuff, what is it like just a handful of students show up or they're required or what? Yeah, so so nothing's required. My class is it's called Data Science for Everyone and it's 200 students. I would say about 150 are not in New York at all. And mm -hmm. about 100 are full on like a different time zone, like India, China, Korea, really far away. So most students actually don't even tune in live. But we do do live segments, brief ones. The full lectures are pre-recorded. Then we go in for like these half hour mini meetups with students mm. to discuss the material. And then it's a rotating group of, of those 50. They're divided. Is this exciting? They're divided yeah. into three cohorts who rotate like A, B, and C. So I'll see a particular student every third class in person. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I was really dreading going in person, and I really thought NYU would cancel at the last second after they snatched up, you know, room and board from everyone. But it's actually, one, it's actually nice to have a reason to leave the house, and two, not to be all like, oh, education can't be done over technology, but it turns out being in a classroom helps. Yeah. Like it helps me, it helps them. So I'm not, I'm not as against it as I thought. I've gotten a million COVID tests, all that good stuff. Does it feel like NYU is being safe and doing things appropriately? I mean, I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. Okay, you know, before I moved to LA to do the music comedy thing full time, I was a professor, and I have no idea what my old university in London is doing. But I think a lot about how if I were still teaching there. I would almost certainly be doing something in person right now. And I have very mixed feelings about it. Yes. So I have mixed feelings about it as well. And I, I am not tenure track. Um, I have a visiting position. And so I felt, especially early on when they were like, okay, we want you to be in person if you can be, in particular my department, it was very important to them, uh, the Center for Data Science. And they were like, you know, if you're concerned for health reasons or for whatever family reasons, someone in your family you don't want to expose, you can ask for an exemption, but otherwise we'd like you to come in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel I had the job security to say, no thanks. Yeah. And my boyfriend and I, you know, we're lucky. We don't not 
profoundly immunocompromised were just nervous, right? Um, <laughs> but then NYU sent all these emails where they were like, thank you so much for volunteering to do this. And I was like, I didn't volunteer. This was, this was employer pressure and you're pretending yeah. that it wasn't and I don't appreciate that. But I do think that they're being... I can't speak to the residence halls or anything like that, but as far as the classroom goes, they're pretty good about it. We're in a really big classroom. There's, Great. you know, wipes everywhere. The one thing that they are not good about, I think the plans came into place over the summer before we all realized ventilation was such a big issue. Yes. I don't feel so good on that front. They were able to give me, a, I have an office that I use sometimes on my own and it has a window, which makes me feel better. So it's okay. And I honestly thought they'd be shut down by now, but they haven't. So That's I don't know. Wild. Call me again when when I have COVID and I'll tell you what I really think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's easy to sit here and be like, I guess it's fine. It might be worth for the purposes of our listeners who I don't know if they know this, just to tell them what data science is mm. and what kind of class it is. I feel like everybody knows what data science is now, but I am a terrible judge of that. Oh, I don't know what what is data science. Oh, is that true? So I'm so glad you both asked. <laughs> Wait, wait, hold on. Are, are you doing a bit, Leighton? Or this is not a judgy question. I'm just asking. <laughs> do you not know what data science is? I don't know. It sounds pretty judgy the way you just put that. <laughs> Listen, I dropped out of art school. For the sake of this podcast, I'm going to be the clueless person that I am inherently. I'm saying that like I'm doing a bit. Uh, <laughs> tell me what data science is, please. Did you answer my bit? Are you doing a bit or do you not know what data science is? I don't is? know what data science is. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, I can kind of guess, but just tell me what data science is. <laughs> No, this is so evil. I'm like, yeah, all right. Tell me what you think it is. Now I want to know. Actually, can we do that? All right. Yes, Layton, say what you think data <laughs> science is. I think I think that data science is, um, you know, when you have a couple of hot dads and they 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 want to do some science together. Already wrong. Sorry, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't understand why that would possibly be wrong. Uh, <laughs> please, someone just tell me what data science. I legitimately want to know, since you don't know it, because it's always interesting when you hear a term mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't know very well what it is, could they guess or does it just seem like two words put together? So I'm genuinely curious. I'm assuming it's like analysis on statistics and data related to science. This is my answer. Honestly, it's a pretty good answer. Brian, you want to take a stab? Yeah. Okay. So what I would say data science is, to me, it is the study of large data sets. And mm. that's kind of the broadest definition that I can think of. Very good. So thank you both for getting me in teacher mode where I'm like, would anyone else like to share what they think of <laughs> when they think of data science? Those are both great answers. And I would actually say that uh, that sounds patronizing, but there is, it's, it's not. <clears throat> You're actually both more than in the ballpark. It's, it's right at the intersection of it. The punchline is that no one knows what data science is, including data scientists. <laughs> and my co-instructor and I have a thing at the beginning of the semester where we say, here's our view on data science. And we actually thought about asking about it on the midterm and decided not to because we were like, well, it's not universally agreed upon. It's just kind of what we think and a few other people think, which is right. basically to say that it's trying to understand the world using data. Usually, Brian, as you said, it's large data sets. And by large data sets, we usually mean data sets that span more than like more than one computer. Like it's so big, you couldn't put it on your own laptop, something like that, right? It's on the cloud, that kind of thing. That's the loose rule of thumb for large, though obviously laptops and computers have different capacities. And then the other piece, Leighton, you're totally right, is trying to use scientific methods, either traditional methods and statistics or, you know, computational machine learning types of techniques 
to understand something about the world using this evidence. And then people use it to make predictions. People use it to explain things. So my PhD is in political science and for a long time resisted the subfield or field of data science because I was like, it's kind of made up. And any <laughs> scientist that uses evidence is a data scientist. Mm. And only recently, honestly, after I started teaching this course, I was like, I see. Basically, it's the intersection of data, statistics, programming, and science that you're starting to create new programming techniques specifically for dealing with big data sets and new ways of thinking about how we can make inferences if you have super large data sets or how we could automate the collection of new data. So it's slowly becoming its own field. Have I bored everyone to death? No, no. I think that's great. <laughs> I'm just seeing these bars. It's just me talking in silence. <laughs> it's like, oh God, sorry. Can you give some examples of data science just like as a point of reference? Yeah. So uh, one of the most common ones that people are excited about is something called machine learning. It's effectively saying, hey, computer, here's a whole bunch of data. Uh, so there's something called supervised machine learning. That's the simplest, where I say, here's a whole bunch of data on something I think affects something else. And I'm going to give you a whole bunch of data on X. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of data on Y. And you, computer, are going to tell me how X and Y are related. And that's kind of like a bottom-up way of learning about the world compared to statistics, where I would say, okay, I think X influences Y. I'm going to write out a statistical model and see if that's true. Mm -hmm. It's like this bottom-up computing with data where the computer says, aha, this is the underlying structure that you might be interested in. So people are using data science for anytime Netflix is giving you a recommendation or Amazon recommendations, all of that is data science. They're just looking at all the massive amounts of data of what you've watched before and what other people who've watched similar things that you've watched before have also watched. And they're just trying to predict the next thing that you might like. Then we sell that information and... Everyone has a good time. Exactly. Yeah, which is, I think, partly why it's such a hot field these days because everyone is hiring data scientists, right? Yeah. So if you demonstrate any inclination or proficiency in it, you can probably get a sweet job somewhere. Yes, it's definitely the job. So I've been in higher education long enough, both as a student and a professor, to know that like these things trend hard. And this is definitely the new trend. And it's the first one that I actually think has some merit. Like, when I was uh, a junior faculty member, everyone wanted to be a business major. And I just couldn't say enough, please don't be a business major. Like major in anything and then do business later. There's a million of you, do not be a business major. And then when I was a grad student teaching undergrads as a TA, everyone was obsessed with law school. And that was before the financial crisis. And now that's over. So at the risk of being too blunt, please, why haven't you sold out and gone into private industry? Oh, I have. I definitely have. Oh, you have. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for your bluntness. Uh, I work as a consultant for companies in addition to being at NYU, and I help them think about what data to collect and how to collect it ethically, per Layton's excellent point, and how to make sense of data they have around talent, largely to help think about strategies for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But also mm -hmm. generally, companies are very, very bad at measuring like who are the top performers, who are the great candidates we should hire. Right. And they're almost always using data incorrectly and unethically and harmfully. And so I come in and try to help them. That's awesome. So I'm curious about how you actually approach consulting in regards to like the ethics of the whole thing. Like, are you at liberty to say like the kind of shit that you end up seeing uh, that's like, oh yeah, please, I love this shit. <laughs> By the way, before you start, this is the most interviewee thing we've ever done on this podcast. It's very rare for us to just pepper a guest with questions, but... <laughs> 
I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Okay, good. Because in my mind, I'm like, oh gosh, surely they wanted to talk about something other than my consulting practice. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. so it, it's fascinating to me in particular because, so my training was all in, in theoretical physics mm-hmm. where uh, there were a couple people that like, some people would go into finance if they didn't want to continue in academics or couldn't continue in academics. But generally speaking, people didn't consult while still yeah. being in academics. It was like, yeah. if you left academics, you were consulting. There are a handful of counterexamples, but yes. generally that was it. So I am fascinated by fields like yours where you actually have the option of like being an academic and doing private practice at the same time. It was like never even remotely on the table for me. Yeah, the culture towards sellout ship is uh, <laughs> is more and more accepting as we go. Though I will say that, so when I was doing my PhD in political science, it was a lot like what you're describing. And you were in your PhD program to become a full-time academic. And if that wasn't oh, yeah. your goal, it didn't make sense for you to be there. And it was like, you know, I had one close friend in grad school who who spent a year trying to figure out how to admit or like reveal to her committee, her dissertation committee, that she wasn't planning on going into academia and was yeah. afraid it would tank her prospects of even finishing the degree. Like, that's how serious it was. It's wild. No, I, I got the same thing. I, I had a particularly kind and amazing supervisor for my for my PhD, and he would have been cool with whatever. Like, he, of course, was kind of on that track and had no experience with private practice that I know of anyway. Uh, so he wouldn't have been a good vi- good advisor for how to get, like, a job or whatever in, in, in industry. But, you know, you could have told this guy anything and he'd be like, okay, cool. If that's what you're up for, that's great. But the general vibe was 100% like, wait, you don't want to be a professor? Cool, you can go fuck yourself over there and (laughs) the rest of us will. Yes. Like you've literally wasted our time and the university's money and yes, it was very bad. Yeah, that's the go fuck yourself zone. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you had a kind advisor, Brian. I also lucked out because my advisor is one of, his name is Scott Page and he is one of the only people I know who also at the time did some consulting and was a professor. Like he would keynote speak at companies. He wrote this mathematical theorem that proves that cognitively diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. So now when you hear about the business case for diversity, it almost always has like run off of his work, basically. That's my biased view. He's a hero to me, so I'm being very biased. I mean, that's what he gave his talk on at Nexus this year. Yeah, exactly. You know, Scott. Yeah, so for the, the pop science conference that I help organize, I reached out to Andrea, who gave an amazing talk last year on voting, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I said, do you have any recommendations? Because we're looking, especially for people not in like, you know, hard sciences. And she said, what about my advisor? And this guy was incredible. He seems like just the sweetest guy. Yeah. And he gave this very, very cool talk on exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. I'll abridge the story. So the consulting piece in data science, it's more normal, mainly because I think just as you said, People who teach in data science could easily make a fortune if you just sold out and went to work for Twitter or Facebook or something else, yeah. right? or literally any other company. They're throwing money at data scientists, even if they don't know what data scientists are, which I can tell you a story about that, where they're like, we got to hire data scientists. And you're like, cool, what would you do with them? And they're like, we have no idea. Like, okay. <laughs> Give them data. Science yeah. that data. <laughs> yes, it was insane. But so I was a full-time tenure-track professor for a while and then decided I needed real-world experience. And so I quit that job with like no plan like three years ago. And after I quit, the same advisor, Scott, started bringing me in on some of these consulting projects. And so then I slowly got hired on my own without him and without Michigan. And 
only in the last year, NYU actually called me up and asked me to come back to teach this one class. So I'm sort of like the reverse of what some faculty are, which is full-time faculty and a few hours a week consulting. I do more consulting, but I also teach because I like research and students and thinking about abstract things. That's awesome. Yeah. Plus, I like health insurance too. That's what else I like. Health insurance. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. When you were doing your PhD, so I know poli-sci, you have some people who like never do math at all and other people who are like hardcore statistician types. Were you on the math side of that originally or is that something you moved into? So well done on knowing that about political science. And again, I don't mean that to be patronizing. Most people are like, don't you read the news and analyze it? I'm like, no, not really. So I'll even raise you on the mathematics and say there's actually two areas of political science where you could be super quantitative. One is in formal modeling. So like mathematical proofs, game theory, decision theory, things like that. And then statistics. And then there's qualitative work, which I didn't do. I probably would have been better at it, to be honest with you, but that's not what I did. I did a mix of the two, of game theory and stats. There are some people who are basically the same as people you'd find in an econ department in terms of research, right? Yes, definitely. A lot of political science is like, you know, jealous or competitive younger brother of economics. Political science has kind of lived in the shadow of that for some time. I think it's changing, but maybe I'm just getting more delusional. I don't know. Well, I remember in college, I went to Williams, uh, there was a major that was poly-ec, political economy. And I have no idea if that was just a thing they made up or if that is a thing that is recognized by the broader academic world at large. Or maybe it was 25 years ago and is no longer a thing. Would you say I'm a political economist or is that just a major they had? No, that is a real thing. I think of it as a subfield of political science. Maybe economists think of it as a subfield of economics, but it is a whole branch. I am not a political economist and there are very specific political economics conferences that seem very intimidating to me. And people just show up and yell at each other about math. Yeah, that makes sense. As far as I can tell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that, that was my experience in physics too. Just people showing up and yelling each other about math. But physics has... Tons of, I'm thinking like LHC and stuff, right? I mean, physics has a huge empirical side. Was that just not your world? Yeah, exactly. Actually, they're, they're broadly similar to what you're talking about. I mean, it's, I'd say it's part of the same trend. When I was first starting out, you you had a choice. You could be a theorist or an experimentalist. Mm-hmm. And the theorists are doing the mathematical models and the experimentalists are doing, obviously, the experiments. There are a few people that would kind of bridge that gap, but not a hell of a lot. Yeah. Then around the time I was in grad school, which is late 90s, early 2000s, especially in biophysics or biological models, there started to be essentially computational physicists, which were, it Mm. it wasn't quite data scientists. There was a lot of modeling. So, Mm. I mean, some people do do this. And in fact, now this is a huge deal. But at the time, most of the people I knew doing it were not taking in data sets. They were just doing a lot of like very hardcore simulations. Yeah. For example, protein folding was a big one. Like how do these very, very long proteins, which are these hugely long molecules, how do they mush up and fold? What is in contact with what has big time biological implications? I'm not an expert on this, so I'm probably getting a lot of this wrong. But It sounds great to me. My feedback is you're killing it. Yeah. Well, thank you very (laughs) much. I'm a plausible liar, if nothing else. Yeah. So there are these people doing all these hardcore simulations And that became a third kind of physicist. But I was always like squarely in the purely theoretical camp. I did a little bit of like Mathematica coding, but the kind of thing where I never really learned how to do it right. And I'm sure I was writing these, you know, thousand line programs that could have been done in 
five lines right. by someone who actually knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, so <laughs> there's a huge experimental side of physics, but I was, I mean, I knew those people, but it had nothing to do with my academic life. I see. Yeah, ours was kind of like that, though. Michigan, where I went to grad school, was strange, where it was like, you kind of had to both do some formal modeling, nothing like what you're describing. We're talking, you know, some game trees here. Yeah. And something with statistics to basically test your theory. That was sort of what was expected where I was. There were other folks at Michigan who did a lot of experimental work where, in this case, again, nothing as cool as you're describing, but, you know, bring a whole bunch of people in and show them slightly different campaign ads and see how angry they get, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, And I, I think in retrospect, that would have been a lot more fun than what I was doing, which was staring at spreadsheets. So... We have not discussed Michigan much, but I would love to because I was a postdoc in Ann Arbor for a year. I think uh, we may have discussed this. Were you in the physics department? Yeah. What year were yeah, you yeah. there? Uh, 2010 to 2011. I know we have talked about this a bit, but I think we might have been in the same building. I was in West Hall a lot. Yes. 2010 in particular, maybe 20, 2009. But I was part of the Center for the Study of Complex Systems, which was in West Hall. Mm-hmm. And I took a graduate physics class and was... The only political science PhD student to complete the class, but got a laughably low grade, which at the time was a B plus, which is basically an F in grad school because there's massive inflation. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Mark Newman, I don't know if you know him, was just a saint and I should have gotten a D minus in this class. No. He was on like differential equations and and, uh, modeling dynamical systems and chaos and all this crazy. It was like a Strogatz textbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Leighton, are you familiar with how grad school grading works? This was literally my question because I've always been curious why it's like so skewed in that direction. Please elaborate. Yeah. So like Andrea said, there are plenty of exceptions to this. So if anyone out there got a B plus in grad school in a class, do not yell at us. Um, (laughs) Okay. So generally you'll have these like first year classes, which may be graded a little tougher because they're sort of weeding people out to a very small extent. But generally speaking, the idea is that grades are completely irrelevant in grad school, and no one's going to look at your GPA in grad school, at least as far as I know. Maybe if you're getting an industry job or something, but even then they probably don't fucking care. Yeah, it's like, oh, we want to hire a PhD in data science. Like, well, they have a 3-4, but a PhD <laughs> is like, okay. You know, they're probably yeah. the only PhD in data science you're interviewing, so. Right. So generally, the idea is that everyone gets an A, pretty much. And then if you're really not getting it, you might get a B. Actually, when I was in in grad school, someone who was teaching quantum field theory, she gave out a couple Cs and people almost rioted. Oh, I bet. Like, (laughs) yeah, people were like, they just felt insulted. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying she wasn't doing the right thing. Probably the people she gave Cs to were not doing great in the class. But The idea is just that, look, in grad school, if you're there for uh, a PhD, the main thing you're doing is research. The only thing anyone's going to judge you on is the research. You can fuck up every class, you know, you ever take and still write the best, you know, thesis anyone's ever seen. So the only place I saw people get in trouble was like just getting an incomplete, like not finishing the term paper kind of thing that really ruined some lives or getting caught. Someone got caught cheating on a stats problem set. That will ruin you. Then you're done. My first class at Michigan was this year-long stats sequence that everyone has to go through. When they handed back the first problem set, our TA at the time, who was a more senior grad student, literally made us sit in the room till there's like 20 of us. And she was like, repeat after me, grades do not matter in grad school. And we actually all had to say it like many times as she handed back our assignments, which we'd all done horribly on. Yep. (laughs) This is something that really changes from undergraduate to graduate. The only person you're hurting is yourself. 
if you don't learn something. Yeah. And if you don't want to learn it, fucking fine. The other thing you learn in grad school is how to learn things. Mm -hmm. So if you need that in a year or whatever, you just go learn it then. But (laughs) generally speaking, if you, you know, don't learn differential equations, who cares? You probably won't even use them and it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's also like, I can't speak for master's programs. My understanding is that master's programs grades do matter more. Yes, definitely. But I think the other part of this is like, well, you've decided that if you stay in the program, you're right, there is usually some weeding out in the first or second year. If you decide to stay in the program, you're about to dedicate six to eight to 10 years of your life just to school, followed by postdocs and temporary positions and all this other crap. And so- If you're here to mess around and not really pay attention, what are you doing, <laughs> basically? Yeah. Yeah. No, abso- absolutely. Uh, did you have to do a qualifier oh, yes. exam or anything like that? Yeah, so did I. Yeah. We had to do two. One was oral for two hours. Oh, fuck. And one was a 24-hour written thing, basically. Wow. What was yours like? So to those of you who don't know, a qualifier is most people do it at the end of their first year. And it roughly is like a thing you have to pass to continue on Mm -hmm. to really start doing research. Was that what it was for you? Yeah. It was sort of like a ruling out. It was the same kind of like, if you didn't pass it the first time, you got one more try. If you didn't pass it the second time, it was like, we're done, basically. So we had basically two exams that took place over, I think we had four hours each. And one was roughly undergraduate stuff. Mm. And the next was like first year graduate stuff. And it was like, there'd be two problems on thermodynamics. Pick one. There'd be two problems on electricity and magnetism. Pick one. And the only thing it was used for, well, there was this like bare minimum pass if you want to keep going. And then there was, for the people who were theorists, your score mattered because the advisors, like the theoretical physicists, would like look at the people who did best and be like, okay, those are the people we want as students. So mm. the experimentalists, I mean, some of them did great, but all they needed to do was squeak by. And then for the people like me that were more interested in theory, it was like a very like, okay, I got to fucking do well on this wow. or I'm, I'm hosed. And you would get kicked out, not just you wouldn't get matched to the best advisor? No, no, you wouldn't. You would only get kicked out if you failed twice, like you said. Okay. Um, but you might kick yourself out if you couldn't get a decent advisor. Right. Um, right. Although I don't actually know anyone that, I know a couple of people that dropped out for various reasons, but I don't know anyone who dropped out because they didn't get an advisor they wanted. Generally speaking, mm. it all, it, it, more or less, it worked out for for people. Yeah. Layton, what's the art school version of this? Is there one? No, you sit in a critique <laughs> and nobody speaks up. And they're like, what do you think of the, at least one person say something about this painting? And then one person's like, yeah, it's good. It's very erotic. And then another person is like, I like the <laughs> colors. And you're like, thank you. Uh, and then you sit in that class for an excruciating two hours where nobody will speak except for you during the critique. And you're like, I don't know, this composition is kind of whack. I like it, but it doesn't necessarily work on the diagonal. And then everybody gets pissed at you because you're the only one talking. Wow. Um, it's like that. Everyone has okay. dyed hair. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, a lot less dyed hair in political science, I think. Yeah, yeah physics too. Okay, so in physics, there are right and wrong answers. Tell me if you agree with this or not, Andrea. Uh, I feel like in data science, there are not obviously right and wrong answers. And a lot of it depends on what you want to know and is not like, okay, it's not black and white, right? This is correct. This is incorrect. There's a lot of what you do with the data that will then reveal certain trends or not. 
right. that might be hiding in there anyway, depending on what question you're asking and right. what exact specific things you're doing to, to look at the set. Is that correct? Right. It is. Though people would say that what you're doing is wrong, quote unquote, in the sense that what you're doing with the data, you're using a model that's not appropriate for the data that you have, or the data has so much selection bias, that you can't make the inferences that you're claiming. So you can dispute like the findings, you can dispute the decisions over the methods, but there's definitely no right or wrong per se, you know, unless yeah. you just mess something up, like you, the control and the treatment are not. Of course. Yeah. Mutually exclusive, whatever. Yeah. It's really interesting because that is not a type of science that I personally am familiar with. Mm. Very, like for me, it's like, well, you screwed it up or you didn't. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's right or it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're writing out a game theory model, your math could be wrong. I think that's right. fair. But the sad thing is, and maybe it's good, is that almost no one fully checks all your math all the time. So you read these peer-reviewed oh. papers that, you know, there's typo, you know, <laughs> errors yeah. throughout. Yeah. That's what's interesting to me that I was thinking about what Layton said is it's kind of in between mm -hmm. art and science. Is mm -hmm. There's a lot of, I don't want to say unquantifiable because that's not quite true, but a lot of choices, yes. let's say, you're making yes. that affect what you're going to see. I mean, I think I've said this on the podcast before. For me, like being a writer and an artist, it's like, how well can you bullshit? Like, how well can mm. you tap dance your way into this sort of like making sense? And it's just a lot of like pushing yourself into a corner and being like, all right, how do I weasel my way out of this problem? Yeah, I'm just a little sideshow scam doing a three card Monty on the side of the road. It's like, <laughs> hey, kids, come look at my trench coat. You want to buy it a legal knife? Yeah. I want to circle back around to that uh, consulting uh, ethics oh, yeah. question that I think yeah. we kind of hit like 20 different topics. <laughs> yes. So consulting. I basically am constantly shocked by how not thoughtful people are about data. And I'm not talking about like high level, you know, machine learning or deep learning or anything like that. It's like when people see numbers out in the real world, and I, maybe it's just you've, have, you've been out of school or you just don't think about it that much. They see numbers out in the real world and assume that those numbers are just like the cold, hard, capital T truth. Always. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, well, no, Brian, you said it so well. You're turning qualitative things about the world. So I study humans. So we're in this mushy world between art and science where I say, okay, here's something I'm interested in, democracy or independence or happiness or engagement at a company or whatever, Right. And I'm making a choice as a researcher how I'm going to turn that into a number, what those numbers actually mean. I'm going to turn it through some statistics, and then I'm going to come out and say the number and then try to impose what that seven or whatever means for the real world. And at every stage, you're making a very subjective series of decisions. You're trying to be thoughtful, but you're a human making decisions. And companies, the leaders on down, everyone will say, okay, so what does the data say? Is it statistically significant? Is it a six or is it a five? And you're just like, that's the least important part, you know, is it 5.001 or 5.002? And you're like, yeah, all of it's wrong. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so I spend a lot of time thinking about talent measurement. And so I sit in on companies as they do these conversations to decide if someone is like, from a zero to five, is this employee a five, a four, a three, right? Exceeds expectations at low, et cetera. Wait, it's, it's that coarse grained zero to five? Fuck. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there's scales oh. that go to seven. That kind of maxes oh out God. at seven, I think. <laughs> but usually it's zero to five. And even then everyone's like a four. Like there's so little variation, right. which is a sign you're not actually picking up anything that matters. But they'll do these, you know, 360 reviews and everyone says this person's a four, this person's a five, this person's a four. And then they look at the average and they say, well, the average of this person is five. So there are five. And the average of this person's four. So there are four. And you're just like, right. 
But that's just humans assigning numbers and humans with all these biases and all the yes. racism and sexism and ageism and familiarity bias and recency bias, everything else that everything in behavioral economics and psychology tells us is very real. We've just codified that into numbers. And now you're just treating these people like, well, they are a five and that is who they are for the next year. And that's just not how you measure whether someone is a good teammate or employee or whatever. Right. And then they take data like that, which is not good, and then pipe it through biased algorithms, then we're really in trouble. We hear a lot in the news about algorithmic bias. And I think what we're not spending enough time on, especially when it comes to measuring humans, is the bias in the data itself, that people just sort of assume that that's correct, right? But it's like, no amount of statistics will cure you if you're systematically overemphasizing the outspoken, confident, assertive white person in the room, right? Mm. It feels like a caste system, almost, mm. that they're implementing and yeah. then running through an algorithm. Yeah. And then are pointing to the numbers and being like, look, you're a Brahmin. What, what can I say? It's just what the data says. You know, exactly. Whatever. Exactly. That's very upsetting. Okay, so I'm going to get even more in the weeds. Stop me if this is extremely tedious, but going back to Leighton's question about an example, right? So here's a machine learning algorithm that this company built. And I'm gesturing wildly because there's no other way to explain this. So <laughs> basically what this company wanted to do was, so one of the inputs is your peer rating, 54321, this cast system. That's a great way to put it. Another is, you know, if you work in sales, your amount of revenue results, that sort of thing. Another is, do you reach your targets that you and your manager set for you for the year? Did you reach 80% of them, 90%, et cetera? And a few other types of things like that. And so they were like, why have humans who are biased sit around and decide what their overall year-round rating should be when we could just write a program to do it? And I was like, I'm concerned, but tell oh, me more. God. And so what they did <laughs> is they took, uh, they trained the model based on last year's results. So they said, okay, we have all these people. We knew what their leadership scores were. We knew what their target achievements were. We knew this, we knew that, we knew this. And we know what score they ultimately got, 54321, in the overall company assessment. So we'll just train the model to know what inputs map to what outputs. And so they trained the model, and then they ran the model on the new inputs from this year and predicted what the output should be, 54321. And they just couldn't get it through their heads. I was like, what you've done is built a machine that exactly replicates all the bias in your process. <laughs> you haven't gotten rid of the mm -hmm. bias. You've trained it to your bias. That's what models are good at, right? Is yeah. picking up, it, like literally precisely what AI does is pick up on biases and yeah. bring it forward to whatever it's doing next. Yeah. And so a lot of the time people hire me thinking I'm going to help them write fancy algorithms and things like that. And there is a time and a place for that for sure. It's far more rare than most people think, and especially for the kinds of things companies are doing that I'm working with. And honestly, my recommendation to them is spend all of this money that you just spent, they spent a year building this machine learning algorithm and hired all kinds of people. Data scientists are expensive. Instead, if they had thought about how could we more thoughtfully measure the contributions of people on our team in much more three-dimensional ways than just are they leaders or not, right? What are some of the skills you hope that they exhibit? How do you know they're exhibiting those? I even think, you know, awareness training for, for managed trainings are limited, but, but investing in reducing racism and sexism and all of that so the inputs are better. And then creating an index rather than a machine learning model is a much better way to go forward. But they just wanted to say, we're using machine learning to remove bias from our talent performance assessment. And that's just not what they did. Wow. Hmm. So you can, I'm just, now I'm just getting yeah. angry. So they hire me and then I <laughs> yell at them. <laughs> and, then, and then I go somewhere else and do the same So thing. basically they, they, they hire you and your argument is, why did you hire me? Usually, then, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then you do reluctantly 
or perhaps not, what they ask you to do and then tell them, look, this wasn't going to work anyway. Or I say, so the, the machine learning one was something that I was like, I wouldn't do it if I were you. And then they did it. And then they brought me in and wanted me to help train the managers how to interpret the results. And it was a very difficult thing because I was like, right, but I don't think you should share these results because you haven't done any work. Even if the model was good, you still haven't done any validation. You have no idea what you're doing, right? Yeah. It's like if you had a machine learning model that predicted whether you had cancer and it's like, well, how accurate is it? And you're like, well, we never actually tested that part. It's like, this is insane, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the really weird part to me. It's not even clear what success means right. in these cases, right? Because right. it's not this, did you do this or not in most cases? You know, it's this weird, squishy thing where it's like, was this a good employee? Okay, you can put targets and things in, but generally speaking, that's not a yes or no right. question, right? It depends in what sense you're asking. Right. And very, very hard to quantify. My, my I think a lot about all these fucking data-driven metrics mm. that, that are going on right now. <laughs> fucking data-driven metrics is my new favorite phrase. Thank you. Yes, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and so much of it seems like just pointless bullshit. You know, mm. a great example being standardized testing, mm. which I know nothing really, really about. So from what I do know, you know, for college or grad school admissions tests, they're terribly biased, you know, yep. SAT especially, not at all good predictors of success. Yep. They definitely preferentially give higher scores to rich white people. Yep. Probably rich white men, yep. I would have guess. Shocking. What, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, Leighton. I'm with you. I'm really, yeah. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Back Never up, Brian. Went. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But people keep using it. I know, actually, this year, I think there have been a lot of institutions that have gone away from standardized testing because, obviously, testing got so fucked up in the spring. COVID fucked up a lot of standardized testing. Like, you couldn't even take the test well. Yeah. And so I think a lot of places were just like, you know what? Uh, we were kind of thinking about it anyway, but don't worry about it anymore. It could be a good, you know, exogenous shock, so to speak, to remove away from testing. It could be a good proof of concept to schools. Like, yeah, actually, you totally. could do fine, and we'll see in four years what the retention looked like, and maybe we did a better job of predicting. One of my colleagues at NYU is a faculty member. She's a data journalist professor. Meredith Broussard just wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the international baccalaureate testing that was supposed to happen this spring. And as you said, Brian, it was one of the many tests that like it either didn't happen or it happened in such a limited capacity that only a few students got it. So they kind of scrapped the whole thing. But they yeah. did exactly, you know, a version of what this company that I'm describing did, which is they said, well, no worries. We know all their practice exams and we know where they're from and we know what their grades are. We can just predict what their scores would have been. Oh, like <laughs> like England did. It was England. Yes, exactly that case. And so she yeah. wrote about that and she was like, yeah, algorithms shouldn't do this. And her other point going back to we were talking about Netflix is like, you know, Netflix gives you a recommendation and it's not a great movie. That sucks, but whatever. But, it, you know, the algorithm wrongly, all algorithms have errors. All models have errors. It's part of it. If they wrongly give you a three and you're a five, that ruins your life. Yes. You know, having been a faculty member in England, I try to stay aware of these things, right? Oh, yeah. And it was really fucked up what they did. So, yeah, as I understand it, they basically got these algorithms to predict what these students would get. And in fact, kind of ignored the teacher's recommendations mm. and would say, oh, we wouldn't expect this many people from this neighborhood to get A's. So therefore, these people can't have possibly gotten A's. Mm -hmm. If I understand it correctly, teachers put in like what they think the student is going to get and you get provisionally admitted to universities based on that. And then you get the actual grades later. 
And the actual grades, because of this stupid algorithm, and I can't remember the name of the company, were significantly off. And people who had been accepted to various universities were denied because of algorithmic bullshit and like literally ruining people's lives. And then eventually, I think uh, they just said, you know what, actually, we're just going to go with the predicted grades and you can ignore all that algorithm stuff. But it was like, yeah, many, many weeks of outcry. Well, and there was something else crazy where they were like, oh, okay, your practice exam grade is what we'll use instead or something like that. And it's like, yeah, if I had known you were going to use my practice, exam, I probably would have prepared differently <laughs> for the practice exam. Like totally. that's none of, there's no good solution here. And, and yeah, but you're right. I mean, the instinct to create standardized tests come from an instinct to turn something that is multidimensional and qualitative and complex and subjective, potentially, depending on what it is that you're looking for into a single number. And I'm not saying that's impossible. Well, I am saying it's impossible to do it perfectly, but it's possible to create, you know, subjective partial measures and then look at all of them in the scheme of like 25 different measures. But the problem is, is that if you just look at the SAT and the way the SAT is designed and it, it has all these biases that you described, it's on its own, not a great measure. And it's often considered at the expense of other ways that we could have thought about how to understand yeah. you know, someone's potential or, or abilities or whatever. There's a math result I think about in this context, and maybe there's a, a data science version of this too, but if you were projecting a geometrical shape, let's say from three dimensions down to two dimensions, mm. like you want to draw a cube, a three-dimensional cube in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're drawing a two-dimensional thing. You could accurately reconstruct the three-dimensional object from the two-dimensional picture. Mm-hmm. Once you go one dimension higher and project a four-dimensional <laughs> yeah. shape to two dimensions, you are guaranteed to lose information. Yes. And it is impossible to uniquely determine a, let's call it a, a tesseract, if you want right. to get, I mean, no mathematician I know uses that word. So it's impossible to get every piece of information about a four-dimensional shape from a two-dimensional drawing exactly. of it. Exactly. And I think about that a lot in this context, which is you're just losing a ton of information and it might be a pretty good estimation in some cases, but if you rotate the thing a little bit, all right, well, you're in a completely different direction and now the answer is different. Right. And it goes back to, you know, I think that it's worth trying to do it. And so political science, one of the things I like about it is that it's all about taking these things like democracy, belonging, engagement in politics and trying to turn them into numbers. But political scientists spend entire careers trying to come up with a single measure or a a smattering of measures to help someone understand, you know, civic engagement or a sense of civic duty or trust in the government. And it's the subject of entire industries within the field. And what I found when I went to the field in terms of working with companies and and data science, so I'm bringing a lot of this political science thinking, like how can we thoughtfully turn these into numbers, is that, yeah, no one is being thoughtful about turning things into numbers. And all the problems we just outlined with the SAT, at least we've studied it and it's fairly well documented. And it's just the wild west in these corporations where they're like, you're a five and you're a four and you're a three. And we're going to call everyone who's a four and above. I'm going to get fired a four and above top talent. And from now on, we only care what top talent thinks. And we're only going to give them all the resources and we're going to assign them to these great mentors. And if top talent don't like a policy, we'll scrap the policy. And it's just the most insane thing I've ever heard of. That seems straight up dumb. So especially in regards to the SATs, like, do you guys as you know, professor people see like a viable alternative to that right now. I think there is a viable alternative out there right now, which are grades and letters of recommendation and mm-hmm. and maybe even interviews with the students, although those are also very biased for 
you know, like if you have one interviewer who knows what that person is bringing to the table or the student's having a bad day, whatever. Right, but sure. I, I don't see any reason that you can't use grades, letters of recommendation, and maybe, you know, essays or whatever, like application stuff the student has to write, yeah. which they have to submit anyway for basically everywhere. So to me, at least for undergraduate stuff, the SAT, all it does, I was never on an undergraduate admission committee. It's same. And this worked different in England anyway. So please do take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> the SAT, it filters out a huge section of applicants by just putting in an arbitrary line and saying, anyone who gets below X on the SAT, we're just not going to consider. And it makes people's jobs easier. So the alternative is asking people to do more work. Right. Uh, but I think that's that's fine. But I appreciate, of course, if you're at, you know, let's just say Harvard, right, and you get how many thousands of applicants, right. it is obviously beneficial on their end to have some like very, very simple metric that they can at least to get rid of, let's say, half the applicants without even looking at them. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can understand why they want to do that. It creates less work for them. But I think we have the alternatives there already. It's just it would require more human power to make it happen. Yeah, because it, it really felt like the first time I took the SAT was in like middle school, I think, just because everything right. was so intense. Like you got to be, you got to prepare, you got to be ready. More than anything, studying for the SAT teaches you how to take right. the SAT and exactly. yeah. not much else. I taught Princeton Review for years in graduate school to make extra money. And the whole point of the Princeton Review is this is a test you can get better at taking. And it has mm -hmm. essentially nothing to do with knowledge. So yeah. you are paying us money to teach you tricks for getting better at this test, which is another reason it biases towards rich people. Yeah, it's a good indicator of whether or not your parents invested in a tutor and had the resources to do so. It's not to say that people who get top grades are not doing it on their own, et cetera, but you're absolutely right that that's a huge part of what it's picking up. No, but you're learning how to take the test if you have, you know, it's a difference between warming up before you exercise and just like throwing them in the deep end. Or having a coach before you go on the field or whatever. I'm out of sports yeah. examples now, but that's the idea. <laughs> uh, I got to travel to the houses of very many rich people around San Diego in grad school. And it was astonishing how much money these parents were willing to throw at these kids. And some of them were very smart kids and some of them were, you know, less, well, I don't want to say smart or not, but some of them were going to do okay on the test and some of them weren't. And some of their tests got a little bit better, hmm. but it was clearly biased towards rich people uh, is the only point I'm trying to make because I got to visit some like fucking castles practically Jeez. in gated communities in, in San Diego. This was when you were tutoring? Yeah. I was, so this was like basically all through grad school. Uh, I didn't do it at all in college. There are very few people in Williamstown, Massachusetts, but San Diego is a big city. So to make some extra money on the side, I taught. This just shows you what a scam it is. Not Princeton Review, but the whole standardized test thing. Uh, I taught. SAT, GRE, GMAT, the business school test, yep. MCAT, physics, which is actually a subject-based test. But I thought the fucking GMAT, I was yeah. not going to business school or anything, but it was like, okay, well, I can do little logic puzzles or whatever. I could have taught LSAT had I like trained for that. Right. There was no, like, except with the one exception of the MCAT, where you needed to know something about the subject. So I taught physics. Uh, every other test was just like, yeah, you can learn that. That's easy. You know, just like read this book. Well, I remember taking the GRE when I was a senior 
planning to go to grad school and I hadn't thought about the GRE or the SATs for three years or whatever. And I sat down with a book or something to practice. And it was basically just the SAT all over again with a few yes. slightly harder. And it's like, is this going to pick up what I learned in four years of college? Maybe, maybe I just wasted all my money on tuition, but this can't be the way in. It's so dumb. Yeah. And yeah. it is very much, as you said, Brian, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition to get into a lot of top programs, undergrad, grad. Yeah. It's our, I mean, the same thing. I've helped with master's admissions at the Center for Data Science, and I helped with PhD admissions at Michigan. They always had students on the committee. And it was helpful to see. And luckily, as you get more senior, these numbers mean less and things like letters mean more. But what you're yeah. describing is, you know, the more thoughtful way to do this is a move away from automation and data because yes. we're just not there yet. And what I'm seeing with these companies, and these are, you know, massive companies in some cases, global Fortune 500s, or they're, you know, tech startups, scale ups, and they think really highly of themselves. And you'd hope they'd be more thoughtful about this. And they're all just treating these numbers like, like an 800 on the SAT or 1600 or the rating is 32 now. I forget what it is, but it's like, oh, they yeah. have a top score equals they'll be a great employee. They have an MBA from Stanford, oh, great employee. They're terrible. a CS major from Harvard, done. And that's, and they're just writing programs to replicate that. And it's like, how can you not be more thoughtful about this? Yeah. Even if you don't care about the social justice side of thing, it's like, don't you want to hire great people? Okay. And have great teams. And also... People get better. People get better with trading. I know. Like, you, you, I know. It's very hard. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but quote unquote potential is, I would gather, essentially impossible to quantify. But they try. Oh, they try. But they try, right? They try. Literally, they'll come in and be like, okay, he's a five for performance and four for potential. And it's like, you just thought of that? Like, they literally marked a number line. Anyway, you get it. Yeah. This seems like a useful thing to do, although no company probably would do this unless they were really willing to go out on a limb to hire randomly, like actually randomly, just <laughs> pull pull applications out of a stack. That's cool. And don't look at it. And then see how those people do compared to a vetted or, you know, algorithmically selected set of uh, hires. That would be the real that'd be awesome. Interesting result to me. Is is like completely like don't screen by anything. Maybe don't do blank applications, whatever, or toss them if you get them. You want to co-author a paper? That's a great idea. Maybe it's been done. I'll have to take a look. That's great. <laughs> Actually, there was a, you will know this because I heard you give a talk on things like this. Eric Maskin, he's an economist. Mechanism design theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think he won the Nobel for voting stuff. So I remember him giving a talk when I was a postdoc and very similar to the talk you gave and just talking about voting systems in, in general. I'm sure he mentioned Arrow's theorem like, like you did. But the one thing I will always remember from this talk is he used the following as, a, as an example of a perfectly plausible voting system that no one would ever do, mm. which is, let's say, picking one candidate, a president or whatever. Everyone writes their choice on a ballot. You pick one thing you write on your ballot. You throw those ballots into a big tumbler and you pull out one and that's the person that gets it. Uh, yes. <laughs> so is there a name for that? I mean, this is exactly like your area of specialty, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the name is to be honest. Is it lottery? I haven't heard of this, but it's brilliant. I mean, if you believe in <laughs> probability whatsoever, that's a totally fair way that's right. to do it. And it would save everyone a lot of grief because that's effectively what happens every time, sort of. That's right. And as the number of ballots increases, the better that system yeah. gets. But there's always a 
non-zero, I mean, not even like infinitesimal, but a non-zero chance that some crazy fringe candidate is going to get yeah. picked. Yeah. So you have to be willing to to tolerate it. If anything, yeah, it, I'd, I'd be interested in the math around, does it amplify the chances of these rogue, you know, third, fourth, fifth parties? Because in the current system, it's effectively zero. And I wonder if, right. if the probability is actually higher under what they're describing. I would imagine it scales with the number of ballots, right? So if it's yeah. a small system, then yes, absolutely. But if you're dealing with millions, then it's probably pretty much the same. Yeah. There's a great Isaac Asimov short story that one of my students at Carnegie Mellon forever ago when I used to teach a class on democracy and autocracy, but we had a unit on voting systems. It's a short story that he wrote. Basically, it's the United States, and instead of having everyone vote, they just randomly choose one person who will vote, and that person gets hounded by all the candidates for like six months and then makes a choice. <laughs> but oh, oh, and they have, it's multivac. It's M-U-L-T-I-V-A-C is like this uh -huh. algorithm or computer that they write. And he wrote this, you know, forever ago. Uh, yeah. this algorithm that finds the most representative American. And so every year there's like a big effort to figure out who the most representative, you know, some white dude in Ohio or something yeah, like yeah. that at the time. Yeah. But yeah, he just has a miserable experience and everyone else lives their life, which I think is pretty great. I want to change gears a little bit and we should do segments because I know Leighton, you have limited time. So generally, I think the people listening to this are pretty young, hmm. like in their, what would you say, early 20s or so, Leighton? Is that fair? generally? Yeah, I'm not really sure because there's a difference between like the passive, like not really engaging listeners and the people who engage very intensely with it on social media. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's kind of hard to gauge. I haven't looked at the back end stats in a while, but I will say we we charted number 82 on the Apple comedy interview podcast wow. charts last week. Awesome. Nice. Congrats. Thanks. Thank so what I was going to ask, I suspect a lot of our listeners are, if they are academically minded, which I know some are, are kind of at that like end college, beginning grad school phase. So I'm curious for you, and I can talk about this too, and this is something I don't hear people talk about that much, which is why I want to ask, is what was the emotional reality of grad school Whew. for for you? Like, Whew. we can talk all about what we took and blah, 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 but what was that experience like for you? This is the thing people actually should know mm -hmm. about going to grad school is what it feels like to be in grad school. And I don't hear too many people talk about it. So I'm curious what your experience was. This is an amazing question. And honestly, I was on uh, the risk of oversharing, was on the phone with my therapist a few hours ago, and I should have just kept her on the line for this. I think this would be <laughs> <laughs> really... Incidentally, this is maybe all you need to know about the emotional reality, which is a great way to put it. I am now back in touch with my same therapist that I saw in grad school because the quarantine Whoa. has like put me back into grad school mind. And I was like, she's the one who can help me through this. And yeah. I was right, basically. So if you're at a PhD program, here's how it felt for me. Obviously, caveats, I can't assume it's universal or anything. Of course. I went straight from undergrad. I didn't go to a master's. I didn't go to the real world. So I really didn't know what I was doing. The first two years just felt like more school. And apart from the chanting grades don't matter in grad school bits, and like the occasional, you kind of got to go to research seminars, which was cool. That weren't usually something that happened for undergrads and that kind of thing. Your life is kind of the same. And I was sort of in a holding pattern and I had gone to grad school because I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I thought I might as well keep going. And PhD programs are nice because you're not paying tuition, even though you're losing, you know, opportunity cost and self-esteem, which we're getting to now, which is... And life essence. Yeah. Then you take the qualifying exams 
And after that, I felt like, cool, I'm halfway through. I'm on my way out. This is like year three now. And then for me, anyway, it all went dark. (laughs) It all got really bad. You're kind of like, you go from a ton of structure, busy coursework. It's, it's intimidating faculty, lots of interactions, meetings all the time, this and that, to just sitting in a room by yourself. And all you've really learned in the coursework is how little you know. And they've done a good job of really breaking down your sense of like, I thought I understood statistics, but I don't. I thought I was like pretty clear on this and this and this, but I'm not. And every question I've ever had in my whole life has been answered 10,000 times before by everybody else who ever lived. And so I don't know what to do. And then you spend years and years and years, it's getting dark, years and years and years trying to put together a prospectus, at least in my field, which is a proposal to do the dissertation work. And that was the hardest part for me Mm -hmm. because you basically have to defend the worthiness of your research before you've even done it. And as someone who naturally has low self-esteem and a lot of self-doubt, it was very hard to do. And I kept switching topics and I would retreat from my advisors and then emerge a few months later and show them something. And they'd say, no, try again. And I would cry for a month and then try again. Uh, And and I almost left a thousand times. And then once you finish your prospectus, it's more solitude, but at least you have a sense of like, okay, if I just do these things, then I'm done. But there were three years, I think, for me. I was there for a while. You're both like very stressed, but have no structure and you're extremely isolated and no one else knows what you're thinking about, even your advisors to an extent. Have I dissuaded everyone from going to grad school? I might have. No, (laughs) you know know what? I will say broad brushstrokes, 100% my experience. Really? The difference being, at least for me, in my particular case, my advisor was, he was like, think about this. Because in... You know, in in theoretical particle physics, the problems are pretty hard to find, Mm -hmm. at least until you're kind of in it for a bit. Some advisors, by the way, were just like, okay, go find a problem. Mm -hmm. Mine, thank God, was not. That's awesome. Yes, asterisk. The problem he gave me turned out to be something that was notoriously one of the hardest things (laughs) and least well-known things in string theory. And it wasn't even a, a concrete problem. It was like, People are thinking about this these days. Go learn about this. And my advisor was not an expert on it either. There was no one else who was even sort of an expert on it that I could find. All the papers were years out of date, except for this very recent spate of incomprehensible things. Mm -hmm. And it was a year or more, I'd say a year and a half at least, of just banging my head against the wall, trying to literally understand what the fuck was even happening. And it went nowhere I had no papers from it. And to this day, it was like, I learned a lot, none of which I remember. Right. But it was a, I do not want to say wasted because that definitely wasn't the case. But from a publishing slash progress towards graduating, completely wasted segment of grad school. Mm -hmm. Then mercifully, after a year and a half, I was like, Ken, please, I, I really am not getting anywhere with this. Oh, oh, the other thing I didn't say, like there were a couple other groups of people working on it who were the super cutting edge people and they would come out anytime you'd go down a little road, they'd be like, paper, okay, Mm. now this result, okay, now this. Mm -hmm. And they were like competing with each other to try to get the latest thing. It was just hopeless. I I had no chance. And you're like, I'm a newcomer going to compete with this arms race over here, which is probably not even that satisfying because I know what you mean where it's like tiny tweak. We did the experiment three times instead, you know, you're like, okay. Yeah. 
hundred percent. In my case too, I had not been a physics major undergraduate because I was math music. So I was exactly in that headspace of like, I think I might be the stupidest person I know. Yes. For years. I mean, no, I don't mean yes as in agreeing with you. I mean, yes. I I felt the same way. I mean, part of being a scientist and I, I, it's easy to sit here retrospectively and and say this is like, you do learn a lot of humility and, you know, having these Yes. conversations like, yeah, what is an SAT score is meaningless. And we all know it's meaningless. You don't have to go to grad school to know that it's meaningless or it means certain things that aren't what we think they do. But in grad school, you learn levels of doubt around everything that you've ever known in a way that you question everything, right? And it's a good muscle and a good skill, yes. but you turn it on yourself as a junior scholar. All the time. And it also, I will say, when you look at, just to take a random example, politicians who are expressing total certainty over mm-hmm. very complicated topics. Mm-hmm. You're like, what the fuck are you doing, you idiot? Yeah. This is a very complicated <laughs> thing. And you're like, here's the answer. Yeah. No. That's not how that works. Yeah. That's not how that works. It's much more complicated. Yeah. And to sum up the answer to my own question, I actually had a great general experience in grad school, mostly on the strength of my wonderful, wonderful advisor. He sounds amazing. He's just the best guy. I actually, because I did not know what I wanted to do specifically for research, I applied to transfer in my third year of grad school to a program that was stronger in particle physics and ended up staying at UCSD because of this guy, because I thought he was so great, which was 100% the right decision. But yeah, it, it was a net positive experience, but with all the crippling self-doubt and Mm -hmm. directionless wandering that almost everybody has in grad school, at least that, that I knew, especially theorists, experimentalists, you're like kind of working on the thing. And you have somewhere to go and I don't know, some tubes to move around. I don't know. (laughs) This is my understanding of experiments, right? It seems a little bit more, more tangible. Yeah. I did a thing for a while where I was like, I was basically buying textbooks to be like, okay, maybe this is the book that it'll click Wow! when I buy it. I mean, not like consciously, but it's like the quantum field theory is such a complicated thing, like notoriously subtle and interesting and amazing. But it's the kind of thing that people don't master for, I mean, sometimes whole careers. Yeah. And so I kept trying to find like the perfect quantum field theory textbook that would explain it in such a way that I would finally get it. And it was... Oh, what a futile, stupid exercise. Like, just never, never quite worked. Mine is so much more embarrassing than that. You've just reminded me, I spent a whole summer, I was actually at a a thing at the University of Manchester on globalization, development, and something else run by Stiglitz. So I spent a couple summers doing that. And I felt so intimidated by all the economists and political scientists, mostly economists who were there, that I would go home and take just garbage IQ tests online and I'd be like, if I don't get a certain score, I'm going to see myself out. And it's like, whoa! after everything we just talked about, I should have known better than anyone that an IQ test is not the criterion <laughs> yeah. that you want, nor would a free one on the internet circa 2008 be the one that's going to point the way. But you just want some kind of validation. Yeah. It, it is so rare in grad school for someone to be like, good job. Yeah. You yeah. know, I remember at one point describing to my sister what grad school is like. Cause she was like, cause your job's pretty easy, right? You like can kind of do whatever. And I said, no, Yeah. here's what my job is. My, my job is to show up at a place and be surrounded by close friends who tell me how dumb and wrong I am mm-hmm. all day. Yep. I'm horrified that we had such similar experiences, truly. And they're right too, by the way. Yeah. They're not, they're not like <laughs> incorrect. 
the idea that I'm telling them, they're explaining to me why it's silly and wrong. Yeah. And that was my experience throughout all of physics. But that's how research gets done because someone's like, you, you say, hey, I have this idea. And someone's like, nope. Yep. Here's why that's wrong. And then you fix it. Right. No, it's it's grim. And I think you're absolutely right. If you think of kind of quarantine days, it's like there obviously wasn't a pandemic. Nothing was that bad in the world compared to anything that's going on right now. But it was sort of like, I'm kind of stuck. I can't really do anything. I've been in sweatpants for six days and I feel bad about myself and I have a lot of pressure. Like there's, there really are thematic. Now that sounds like right. an academic. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. relatable. I feel like this is a good time to move on to segments. Introduce your precious fucking segment, Brian. <laughs> well, uh, fine. Uh, it was a little hostile, Layton, if I'm being honest, but yes, I will. So Andrea, mm. this is the pop culture recommendation segment of of the show, which uh, we do every week. And I don't want to belabor the point, but you get to recommend something that you're enjoying in in pop culture. This is so far as, by the way, the least pop culture-y episode of this ever. Okay. <laughs> uh, which is great. Yeah. I have no problem with that. I think it's awesome to mix it up. Yeah. But the thing that's interesting about this segment that the fans really seem to respond to is not the segment itself, but the theme song for the segment. And okay. so before we get into it, what I want to do is I want to play you that theme song and and see how amazing okay. you think it is. All right, let's go. All right. Here it is. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Okay, great. So, <laughs> thoughts. So I didn't hear anything. Is this a meta concept? The the bit has failed once again. Well, oh, okay. well, well, Brian. <laughs> well, well, fucking well. My track record on this is very poor recently. Uh, but the kids love it. That's amazing. You're like, this is just our silent intro for pop culture. There is a theme song, which I categorically refuse to play for the guests because I insist on doing this very aggressive and uncool <laughs> bit, which now is firmly in the this doesn't work category of bits. Mm. I mean, firmly. like, Isn't that most of your style of comedy, Brian? <laughs> uh, aggressive, uncool, and not funny. Yep, you got it. That's, that's me. <laughs> Mildly alienating. Yeah, great. <laughs> I feel like the only person who actually ran with it was Flula. Yeah, there have been there have been others. The thing is, it's on me. It's not your fault. No, see, now as speaking of self-esteem, I'm like, oh yeah, I should have played it cooler and been like, yeah, yeah, really great. Loved it. Good beat. See, Brian, this is exactly what I'm fucking talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why it's so aggressive and bad of me to do. Yeah, no, this is on me. I've let you down. You have not in any sense because actually <laughs> it makes Leighton happy when this doesn't work because it totally uh, validates her point of view, which is that I shouldn't be doing this to begin with. So hence me being overly aggressive when we introduce this segment, precious fucking bits. <laughs> Honestly, who needs intro music when you could just have the two of you discussing whether or not you should play intro music as part of a bit. <laughs> that could be the intro, if you know what I mean. Well, that also the other part about this bit that really is a huge point against it is that every week we have the same discussion on why and how it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> which I can only assume at this point is repetitive and alienating for the listeners. I mean, you're running a serious controlled experiment. This is, you're just, your sample <laughs> size isn't big enough yet. That's my official data science input. You just got to keep doing it. Sorry, Layton. <laughs> Somebody please answer the question, what's popping? Either of you, please, what's popping? <laughs> 
Sure. I, I, I'm happy to, to go first on this. Uh, what's popping for me is, so I've been talking about this recently. I'm writing a smooth jazz album. Mm-hmm. Smooth jazz being a genre of music that when I was 20, I would have regarded as the worst bullshit of all time. And now that I am a 45-year-old father, I can't get enough of. <laughs> oh, man, I used to hate this stuff. And now I legitimately love it. And the only difference is age. And I was listening to, on Spotify, George Benson Radio, Mm. which is an algorithmically generated uh, list based on the works of George Benson, the jazz guitarist that I actually talked about last week. And this song came on, and I was like, that's the perfect smooth jazz song. Uh, It's by the guitarist Larry Carlton, and it's called Room 335, which is a real dadly name. Room 335. I'm going to look this up and play it later. So... If you're into dad rock, you may know Larry Carlton, the guitarist, as the guy who did the guitar solo on the Steely Dan song, Kid Charlemagne. Okay. Uh, which may be the most dad rock sentence of all time. Yep. I'm not super into Steely Dan. <laughs> Steely Dan's one of those things where the fans really ruin it because people who are really into Steely Dan are kind of upsetting most of the time. Honestly, when you said it, I think I pictured fans before I pictured Steely Dan. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and. Like some of the music's great. Most of it is like, all right, everyone just calm down right now. Uh, but this guy had a very famous guitar solo for Steely Dan and I heard his song. It was playing and I had to like race to my phone to try to find out what it was before. And it was just ending before the song went away forever. Cause you can't back up on these right. playlists. It's just radio. But I got there just in time. Larry Carlton, room three, three, five, check it out. Nice. It's real. As they might say, it's real adult, adult contemporary. <laughs> oh, this is very exciting. When you said smooth jazz, I was thinking like the George Michael, Kenny G. Maybe George Michael doesn't count. Yeah, I wouldn't call George Michael smooth jazz, but Kenny G, definitely. So the, the album I'm writing, I'm playing soprano saxophone on, just like Kenny G. And I'm listening to a lot of Kenny G tracks. And it's that's an uphill struggle, yeah. I'll say, most of the time. That's, there's some good ones, uh, but oh boy. Okay. So a little dire. Well, good to know that's not representative. All right. I'm going to give room 335 a go. I'll play it for my boyfriend with no explanation for why it's playing. <laughs> See what happens. Just fully blast it. By the way, I think for that song, This Sucks is not an incorrect reaction. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I love it. Cool. Andrea, what's popping? So what's popping? I am uncultured when it comes to pop culture, but I can tell you something that I have been tuning into almost every day which is a DJ duo named Sophie Tucker, S-O-F-I-T-U-K-K-E-R. And I had never heard of them until the quarantine when an aerialist friend of mine recommended them during a live stream, whatever. But they, they stream their own DJ sets every day from 1 to 1.30 on Instagram Live. And they stand in front of these like palm trees and they dance around and they cheer. And it's kind of like being midnight at a club or something like that, but it's just them in the daytime. And it's really upbeat music. And it always comes at a time when I am like sick of email for the day. And I watch that and I'm like, oh, there's life outside of this. And they've done it for like 250 days straight or something insane. And every now and again, they do like an evening set, but they're keeping me going. So Sophie Tucker is my recommendation. That's really cute. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. They seem like nice people. I couldn't tell you, but they seem very fun. (laughs) That feels like healing, like drinking some chicken noodle soup. Yes. Except it's got a fat... 808 drum kit on it. <laughs> yeah. The bass will drop uh, on this chicken. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> Layton, what's popping for you? 
What's popping for me is the John Carpenter movie theme anthology from 1974 to 1998. Because in doing this set that I'm doing for the Witching Hour by Tickets of Witching Hour Live.com for our show on Halloween, it's a bunch of ladies doing cool horror stuff. I'm doing a VJ set that I was like, I am going to write 15 minutes of original music, <laughs> which was a foolhardy task. But I was like, I just need to ape John Carpenter really hard. And I think I have done a pretty good job. But it's been great just re-listening to all the hits, you know? Just great. Nice. So much good stuff in there. Oh my God, yeah. In the Mouth of Madness, just fucking shreds. I'm so mad at John Carpenter for being talented. I don't remember that one. It's very like electric guitar It's way less synth. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do very fast Peaches and Lemons. So this is the segment Peaches and Lemons theme song goes here. Peaches and lemons, we don't do lemons anymore because COVID lemon. Peaches is a gratitude exercise. We each share three things that we're grateful for, happy about, excited about, good things that happened, etc. They can be as like petty as like, I had good sandwich or like, I love my child. <laughs> I <laughs> had good sandwich. <laughs> There's our episode title. I'm just impressed sandwich came before child. So <laughs> I mean, well, because for me, I've noticed I'm always like, I don't know, I got my keyboard is make good sound. And then somebody's like, I'm just so grateful for my brother right yeah. now. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, be that's beautiful and profound. Um, I'll shut up about having had Taco Bell last night. Yeah. <laughs> Who would like to start with some fat, juicy peaches? Uh, why don't you start? I feel like this has been such a me episode that I would like to hear you talk more. <laughs> This has been a real diet latent episode because I'm a little out of my depth. And also I think eight hours sleep latent would have been a little bit more inquisitive and active here, but three hours sleep latent. I've got like two brain cells jangling around in here, so I will make it brief. Peaches, one of them last night, I guess this is a Patreon spoiler. Maybe this will be up by the time this episode's out. But last night we recorded a commentary track with friend of the show and previous guest, Jory Griffiths, movie boy of uh, the first episode of Twin Peaks. And it was a really, really delightful time. Uh, and yep. that'll be on the Patreon soon. It was like a watch along thing. It's like press play now and then press the commentary. It's going to be yeah. very fun. Cool. I absolutely want to do more of those. I would love to just yes, work please. through more of that. Show. I mean, we, we went pretty all over the place on that one. Just a lot of me being like, yeah, has a cool jacket. Nice jacket. Good jacket. <laughs> anyway, um, another peach for me is that, you know, I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the terrible decision making that happens in the twilight of me having taken my sleeping pill between that time and when I go to sleep, which was horribly absent last night. So I loved being up and watching the sun come up like, why am I not tired? Ooh. I do not have the brain chemicals for this. Um, anyway, but I'd forgotten that I ordered like fuck ton of like Japanese snacks. And the other day they got here, I've just been eating so many, like my desk is disgusting right now. It's like a variety of things, but I've, I've been trying lots of new stuff. And there was one, hold on, my, I've got my big ass box that also has laundry in it for some reason, because I've lost control of my fucking life. My favorite ones were Yinbis Dream Animals Seaweed Flavored Biscuits. Yinbis? Was that the word you said? G-I-N-B-I-S. Okay. Maybe Gimbies. I don't know. But so good. They're like little animal crackers. It was not what I was expecting, but it's like sweet seaweed flavored oh, yeah. crackers. I'm looking at them. That was good shit. I will pick up more of those for sure. I mean, everything's been tasty and good. Uh, I just kind of like buying random snacks. Did you get the ones that say cream animals, ox and camel 
on it? <laughs> well, yes. Wait, it might be dream. Anna. Sorry, did you say dream or cream? It's dream. Ah, that looked like a C. I want to hold onto this box because it's such a cute box. Is there a blue elephant in the lower right corner? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the exact same one. Green box. Um, you know, you get some of that chocolate banana pocky. And what else did I get? One. I've been eating the same crap since 2020. I need to get involved in this. <laughs> well, see, that was my thing where I was like, I can only eat so many cosmic brownies and crunchy Cheetos, like the disgusting stoner bitch that I am. So I, yeah. I'm going to branch out. But honey butter <laughs> chips were the other ones that really, honey, honey butter, butter chips. chips. And then there's another one that I'm excited to try. It's like salted egg Lay's chips. Just has like a big, beautiful soft boiled egg on the bag. Wow. And then my final peach is, it's sort of a peach. So for the Witching Hour show that we're doing that everybody should get tickets for because it's going to be cool. I wrote this poem that was supposed to go on because it's like a spooky thing. And I was like, okay, I'll write like a witchy poem to go on like the ticketing website. And then dear sweet Stella of Real Good Touring was like, hey, we're going to ask Jamie Lee Curtis to read that poem that you wrote. And I was like, okay. So anyway, they posted the poem and I it was sitting in my inbox for a week, like the video of her reading it, and I cannot bring myself to watch Whoa. it. So A, I think it's extremely cool, but B, I am not sure if I can like emotionally handle watching that shit. Wow. You should watch it live on the podcast or something. Yeah, it's a add. great idea. Yes, <laughs> add please. to your misery. Yeah. All right. Let me pull it up. Oh, you're going to do it right now? Yes. Why not? Wow. Okay. Yes, I love this. I got tagged in it. Hold on. Uh, people being thirsty in my ads. Where is Jamie Lee Curtis? All right. <laughs> Hark, fair travelers of the internet. I come to you with an ominous threat. A frightening decree through the kingdom is sent. A warning of tales of ghouls and torment. On Halloween night, neath the full moon, a coven of mysterious women commune to tell scary stories to give you a chill. And these fearsome creatures form a pact. Show Bill. Wow, she winked. The ghost host foretold <laughs> in tales of yore. Head witch Susie Burhau will guide this tour. Through ghastly crimes, ghouls, and horror, egad. Tales so terrifying, they could make one go mad. Susie formed a pact with Olivia Gatwood, who shares poems of those who are up to no good. Rachel Sam Evans brings expertise on killers. Leighton Gray will regale you about horror thrillers. Tootie McNudie conjures movies galore. And Kate Clover's music will have you screaming for more. These powerful women of magic and fright will convene to bring you an unforgettable night. So take heed, fair folk. Be careful. Beware. Be sure to purchase tickets for this mystical affair. Happy Halloween. That's fantastic. That was amazing. That was great. I had to lie down. (laughs) Do you feel good about it? It was awesome. I thought that was awesome. I mean, mean, it's always the thing, like, anybody else, like, reading your work is weird, especially when it's a thing that you shit out in 15 minutes uh, for a ticketing website. And then it's like, oh, it's Jamie Lee Curtis reading it. Uh, I can't believe you did that in 15 minutes. That would have taken me a year. (laughs) That's my job. (laughs) As I said, it's bullshitting and tap dancing. Um, So I guess that's the third peach. At some point, maybe in the next year, I'll be like, oh, hey, that was cool. But right now I'm just like, do I exist? That kind of stuff always makes me like, dissociate a little tiny bit but now i'm going to send that to my parents yes and then they'll be all over it 
I thought that poem was great, like legitimately fun, exactly in the style of Halloweeny poems that one would hope uh, you would write for that thing. I, and I loved it. I thought it was great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And very like engaging, like poetry, my eyes glaze over, but this was like fun and like a story that I followed. So hooray. Oh, thanks for gassing me up. Also, we got to hear Jamie Lee Curtis say Tootie McNootie, yeah. which yeah. is a non-trivial thing. Yes, yes. She said my name correctly, which, like, thank yeah. you, Jamie. Anyway, yeah, so those are my three peaches. Andrea, what are your three peaches? Yeah, so one is uh, Dr. Cow Vegan Nut Cheese. Hear me out. It's uh, a place in Brooklyn. So I'm vegan, and vegan cheese is bad. And this is a place that makes really good raw, cultured, vegan nut cheese. And throughout the pandemic, we've been ordering them in bulk, basically. They're like a couple that makes it out of their apartment. And we've been ordering all of their cheese like crazy. And it, to this day, I haven't gotten sick of it. And it's like a thing I look forward to at the end of almost every day is to eat this nut cheese. And I get that nut cheese is not a flattering phrase, but that is what it is. I feel like I've heard you talk about this exact nut cheese before. possible. Oh, you know what? I think I talked about it on Eros Theorem. She's always going on about nut cheese. Yeah. Oh, that's what it was. Yes. Yeah. If the vegan third party wins, we all eat nut cheese forever. And I shout out Dr. Cow. This is how single-minded my brain is. That was nothing compared to what I've done during the quarantine, Brian. You don't even know. (laughs) They also, they do yogurt and chocolate, ice cream. It's great. Wow. You can get it shipped to California if you want. It's very expensive to to ship it because it has to be refrigerated, but you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that's one. My second one, and note that it's coming in second, I would like to say my boyfriend, because Mm -hmm. we have quarantined together forever, and we've managed to not kill each other, and I even still enjoy his company, and he's very nice for leaving the room when I need him to. (laughs) So a good good housemate slash co-worker, it turns out, for him, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, And he runs tech on my podcast, so he's very useful. Is that romantic? Let's let's call that romantic. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's romantic. That's modern romance. Great. And then my third peach, this is gonna this is the most zen thing I've ever said in my whole life. But I have to say that this year, more than any other year, and I've been trying to figure out why, I've actually been very excited about fall and like the season of autumn. And maybe this is mm. some East Coast shit. I don't know. But um Every year people freak out about fall and the sweater season and the foliage and I don't give a shit. But this year I'm literally walking up and down like the East Village in New York and being like, the trees are changing color. It's magical. There's a chill in the air. It's wonderful. And maybe it's just because nothing else has changed materially in so long and the world outside is horrible and it's like the only good thing. But I am really excited about fall. How boring is that? No, that's great. Yeah, okay. That's a beautiful thing. I'm just very jealous of the concept of fall because... Yeah, I apologize. That was probably insensitive of me. (laughs) How dare you? I marinated (laughs) my own sweat every fucking day. Well, actually, that was one of my peaches as well this week was that we don't get fall here, but it is slightly colder than it was a few days ago, which is I'll take what I can get. Last night was the first night that our heat kicked on in our house. And Mm. I was fucking thrilled. Nice. Uh, So, yes, absolutely. So I have the exact same peach, only we don't really get fall. But the fact (laughs) that it's a little colder and I walked outside and it wasn't like hot yesterday, I was, that's fall in LA. I'm so happy about it. Nice. Yeah, it's like, am I miserable today? Oh, no, fall. (laughs) I, I don't know if you know the comedian Guy Branham, who is 
I think one of the funniest and smartest people out there. He has described the two weeks you get a year in LA when you can wear layers. Huh. It's peak fashion. The fact that there, there for at least a, a couple of weeks out of the year, you can wear a jacket and not seem like an idiot is, is really nice. That That's not going to happen for a few months, but. Oh, okay. I was going to say, does it just get hot again in what, February or something? I've only been out here for five years. This is the longest I've lived anywhere since like growing up, mm. but it still feels like I haven't been out here that long. As I understand LA weather is, it is like not super hot until a little later than you might think, like end of June. Yeah. And then it's real hot through like end of October. Yeah, through fall, where it almost feels like it's worse in the fall. Maybe it's just because your expectation is like, yeah. may I please be able to wear jeans, please? Wow. Oh, my God. No. Those 90-degree October days are just infuriating, and there's a lot of them. Or it tricks you, and like for the first two hours of the day, you're like, oh, it's nice and cool. I'm going to take my dog for a walk, and then you come back, and you're like, I'm going to just perish. Yep. But at least you could go trick-or-treating without a jacket. That was always yes. disappointing. Were we talking about this last oh, week yeah. with Susie? Yeah. Yeah, trick-or-treating with a jacket on fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that here you don't need one is is great. All right, my second peach is my daughter's in first grade, and they do spelling every week, and they get eight to ten words a week. And this week, in order, let's see, six of these words were must cut cub club, then don't. And <laughs> Mysterious. Must cut cub club, then don't is like sticking out to me is like this little mantra that they're telling these first graders must cut cub club, then don't. And I don't know why it just, it just, that's very, uh, fire walk with me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It just really makes me happy. Must cut cub club, then don't. Then don't. I'm going to repeat yes. that. That's the new man, woman, camera, TV, whatever. whatever. Yes. Not to totally <laughs> ruin your daughter's education, but yeah, that's a much better yeah. one. Good. Yeah. Uh, and my final peach is we did a Halloween drive-thru last week. How'd it go? Oh. And it was awesome. Uh, they had little like sets that people in costume were on and they would put candy in baskets and you would take the candy. And it was pretty great. It was in a little park in like South El Monte. Um, and we were a little concerned that it might be too scary for Audrey, but it definitely was not. Cool. She's in the Y phase that, as far as I can tell, lasts from <laughs> ages three through the indeterminate at this yeah, point. Yeah, grad school, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and there was a guy as like a, you know, spooky skeleton guy who Audrey said, trick or treat. And the guy went, rah. And then we drove away and Audrey said, why rah? <laughs> you're like, honey, he's a monster. I don't know what to tell you for this one. Like, Monsters go rah. Really trying to workshop this one? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more emphasis on the ah or something. Yeah. Yeah. The why rah uh, is kind of stuck with me for a while. The, the woman who was dressed as the witch with like a big, like pumpkin kind of belly. So she was in like kind of a jack o' lantern costume kind of thing, but a witchy version. She really had some material. She was doing a whole bit about. Did we see her ex-husband back there because he bites? And it, it was like she had a whole chunk worked out. It was having the most fun of anybody on the drive-thru. But it, it was great. It's finally an actor gets to perform. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you know what? I was thinking exactly that. Like these are people who have been desperate to perform for a while. And most of them are just doing raw or blah. But she 
she went for it. It was pretty great. Audrey's right. You know, the skeleton could have had a whole backstory that they could have developed and, you know. Yes. I just don't know why the skeleton isn't talking about his son or just, you know, the issues with his grandmother in the past. Yeah, because yeah. strange, strange father. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no meditation on grief whatsoever. Okay, <laughs> no. Not enough meditation on grief. That's my feedback. Yeah, for, 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 for 2020. For, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Truly, sadly. Oof. Oof. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. This was this was awesome, and I feel like there's so much stuff we didn't even we didn't talk about the circus stuff, and because Andrea is a circus performer as well. We I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Just <laughs> we like, just didn't touch this. No, I know. Like we got so into the other stuff. I mean, who wants to talk about circus when you can talk about measuring talent performance? Uh, <laughs> so yeah. you know, happy to talk about that anytime. Uh, but this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, where can people find you online? Where can they listen to your podcast? Yes, they can find me. I'm very Googleable. Um, I'm online at, at Jonesroy, at J O N E S R O O Y on Instagram and Twitter, and jonesroy.com. And that will get you to all my other shows and, and stuff. My show is Ask a Political Scientist, and it's on YouTube and all over the podcasts. It's great. It's really, really awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, Thank I've you. watched several episodes of it, and I, I always learn something. And you, you find really fun, interesting people who... Yeah, a political scientist and either like a practitioner, expert, or a comedian who's like super politically involved, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And pretty much all the academics I've seen have been not only interesting, but also amazing communicators. So I've really enjoyed it. Well, and after I've just talked about how miserable grad school is, a lot of them are professors I had or classmates in grad school. And it's like, they're all super nice. And you would walk away being like, what is wrong with Andrea that it was so grim when she was surrounded by such nice people? <laughs> well, that's how you survive. Yeah. yeah. You, you survive grad school by finding nice people exactly. and yes. hanging out with them. That's the only way you can survive. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for watching. Yeah. I'm very curious to see grad student listeners react to this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested we're not trying to talk people out of grad school. I mean, I guess maybe a little bit, but yeah, like I, I, anyone who's going through this right now, very curious if this is their experience as well. Yeah. And I'd love to hear if people are having a great time. I hope there are people who are like, yeah, it's wonderful. So I'm sure there are. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not alone if you're enjoying yourself. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Hope you are out there being well, taking care of yourselves and each other and Go go get go, get a little snack today. Maybe have a little Kit Kat. Get yourself a, a little <laughs> Halloween treat. Oh, actually, you know what? The day that this comes out, Halloween's the next day. Happy Halloween, fuckers! Oh yeah, happy Halloween, yeah. fuckers! <laughs> <laughs> this is the end of the podcast. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. All right, bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Knight, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.